0: Finishes up all of these heavy thoughts. <laughs> I don't mind if the thoughts are heavy as long as your eyelids <laughs> don't get, get heavy. I'm just so thankful for all the work and time and money that's necessary to put on an event like this. Very grateful to David and all of you folks from Living Church. I'd really like to single out one main person, though. That is Emily Shea. And with her, all of the ladies that have worked so hard in providing such wonderful food. Thank you very much. Can we just thank them? Easy for us hotshots to get up here and talk. But behind the scenes, there are people just as important, if not more important doing jobs to make this possible. So thank you very much. Um, I'm uh, just going to sort of tie things up this evening. I hope that I can. Um, The uh, idea for this event, if I'm not mistaken, really originated in a brunch Uh, With uh, David and uh, Kevin and Jeff and me at a spectacular four star restaurant, Denny's. Um, But the more we talked about it, we said, you know, this with the vision that Living Church has and with the facilities God has given and uh, with some of the objectives that we think we should accomplish. For the kingdom of God, it'd be great to have this event. Well, I think for a first event, it's been a great success by God's grace, and I hope it's the first of many. Yes. So don't leave the church. Hang around. God willing, there'll be there'll be more of these. I really want to thank my dear friend Jeff Schaefer. He actually did a lot of the, the conceptual and content-based planning, and of course there's so many others. I hate to start naming names because then you have to, like, name everyone, so... Uh, there are so many people that have contributed to this, and I'm very uh, very grateful for that. Uh, one person, one of the dear uh, lady leaders of the church, asked me to say something just briefly, and I believe that uh, she's right, and I promised I would, and that is just sort of parenthetically, and I won't be long tonight, God willing, um, about the importance of theology some people, uh, Christians, have the idea that theology is really not that important in the life of the church. Um, theology, when you boil it down, is basically a systematic, thoughtful understanding of God's revelation. Um, as I pointed out, I think, last night, uh, you can't just pick the Bible up and start reading it unless you understand the Bible storyline. Well, that involves theology, Now, the fact is, theology is inescapable. You've either got a good theology or you have a bad theology. And I can assure you that if you say that we have no theology, that really means you have a bad theology. So the issue isn't whether we will have a theology. It's whether it will be good, mediocre, or bad. So, uh, for a church or an institution to work hard in studying uh, and embracing a correct theology is of great benefit to the church. So much so, I would say, that if the church fails in theology, eventually it will fail. This is another way of saying that theology is essential to the life of the church and essential to the existence of the church. I'd like to uh, begin this evening by reading a text in the scripture. How many of you brought your Bibles, either hard copy or digital? I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 19. My theme tonight is Recovering Creational Christianity. Recovering Creational Christianity. There's a statement made by our Lord here that is most illuminating, uh, but we need to get it in context. So just a few verses here, Matthew 19:1 through 9. Read silently along with me if you will. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea, beyond Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? By the way, notice that expression. Jesus Christ verified that there are only two sexes, male and female, and said, verse five, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been that way. Some other translations say it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, I read that passage not to talk about divorce at all, but to make one emphatic point. Notice that expression. Jesus says, from the beginning, it was not that way. It was not so. Do you understand that Jesus Christ there is verifying one aspect of creational normativity? He's saying that Moses gave a specific law as a concession to your hard hearts. But if you want to know the ideal way, the ideal way is the creational way, the way given at creation. A couple of other times, by implication, Jesus did that same kind of thing. But Jesus Christ himself there, very plainly, is affirming what I mentioned last night and what has been mentioned throughout the day today. It's what we call creational norms or creational normativity. So uh, I would suggest that grasping and living creational Christianity is really essential. So I'd just like to kind of tick through some of these, uh, seven of them, and um, I think you have an outline that mentions those, and ask ourselves, well, how do we do that? How do we live creationally, recover this creational Christianity we've been talking about? I'm sure there's a lot more that can be said, but I'm going to mention briefly uh, seven ways. First of all, and this is really vital, understand that redemption, redemption is not an end in itself. Jesus Christ's redemption on the cross is not an end in itself. It's not the be-all and end-all. All All right, let's have a little review. What's the storyline of the Bible? Just three words. Okay, we've already studied this. Now it's time for the quiz or the test. What is the storyline? Fall. There you go. Now, if you just remember that, that alone will be valuable for this weekend, for this week. Creation, fall, redemption. Uh, I mentioned this, I think, in Sunday school last time on the panel we had, but to make this vivid in your minds, have you ever been watching a movie on DVD at home, and somebody rushes in about halfway through the movie, and they watch it for like five minutes, and they say, well, why did he say that? Why did you do that? Or where are they right now? I see some guilty parties in the back raising their And then finally, you get exasperated, you're really engrossed by the movie, and you say, you're just going to have to watch it from the beginning, right? Well, the, the same is true with respect to the Bible and the Christian faith. People will read the Bible and say, mm, I wonder what that means, I think I understand, but really they need to read it from the beginning. And if you read it from the beginning, then you will understand, or at least have a greater understanding of what the Bible is really about. And I would say what the Christian faith is really about. It's about creation, fall, and redemption. Um, So we think about other things following in the Bible, and I would suggest to you that unless you understand creation, you can't really understand what's going on. You want to know about God's Covenant, God's work with the ancient Jews, start with Genesis. You want to know about the ministry of Jesus Christ? You say, well, I'll just pick up Matthew 1 and start reading. No, I think if you really want to understand Jesus Christ's ministry in its fullness, you'd better start reading in Genesis 1. You want to understand salvation? Somebody says, that's easy, I'm going to turn to John 3.16. No, I suggest you start reading in Genesis 1. You want to understand eschatology for the future? Oh, I'm going to go immediately to that so easy to understand book, Revelation. I'm going to start in Revelation to understand God's timetable. No, if you want to understand God's plan for the future, you need to start in Genesis 1. Creation lays out God's normativity for the cosmos. In that sense, and I would add, create, uh, redemption rather, understanding all of that, redemption is a return. You ever notice uh, how many words in the Bible associated with salvation begin with R E, or at least imply that? Sort of, we would say re words. You ever notice that? For instance, redemption and regeneration, or being born again, and restoration. In the Bible, one or two times uses revive, and it uses in English the word reformation. You ever notice that? Why is that? Because in redemption, God is repairing the damage done to his creation. I mean, that's what sin did. Sin damaged creation. Earlier, Jeff today was talking about broken people and their broken backgrounds. Another metaphor we would use um, is is healing. In fact, you even see it, soteria, you even see it in our word salvation. Think about the first few letters of salvation. Salve, S-A-L-V, salve, like we would use salve. The gospel is sort of like salve to put on uh, people that are very broken and that need to be healed. It's restoring that which was lost. Man, then, of course, is restored to his cultural mandate. And that leads me sort of to the second thing. This is a crucial truth in recovering creational Christianity. All valid tasks for Christians are distinctively Christian tasks. Oh, this is wonderful. And I think the Protestants in particular, historic Protestants, have understood this. But I must say... That I know many Protestants like to criticize Roman Catholicism and criticize uh, not only the work system of salvation as they perceive it, or the monks, or the nuns, but you know, I must say, we, we ourselves, among Protestants and evangelicals, often develop a, a spiritual caste system, don't we? And it goes like this Brother or sister, are you called to full time Christian ministry? Mm-hmm. And the truly committed ones, the truly committed ones are pastors, or Christian school teachers, or missionaries, people that work full-time in a Christian ministry. They really are truly devoted. Now, I sling a hammer for a living, or saw cars for a living, or... um, work at Walmart or whatever the case may be, or sell stocks for a living, whatever it is. And so that's kind of the life that I have to live to support my family. But then I get to come to church and hear somebody that's really devoted to God because he is in full-time Christian ministry. And so we often have heard the expression, and perhaps you have, of, well, we need more young men surrendering to the gospel ministry, Surrendering their life to the gospel ministry. How many of you have heard that expression before? Surrendering your life to the gospel ministry. You know, oddly, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever heard any Christian ever say, well, he surrendered his life to be an investment advisor for Jesus. She surrendered her life to work for a dear friend in some particular calling. But I must say to you that One thing that genuine Protestantism has contributed is what has been called the sanctification of vocation. Isn't that beautiful? And this is what the main point that I want to make about recovering creational Christianity, and it really is vital. We need to get out of this sort of spiritual caste system. Whatever God has called you to do as a believer, if it is a valid task, if it's a legitimate task, if you do this task to the glory of God, you are no less spiritual, you're no less godly, you're no less zealous for the Lord than those of us involved in, quote, full-time Christian ministry. But this also should change our thinking a little bit. If you maybe farm for a living, sadly not many farmers, at least smaller farmers of smaller areas left, but if you farm for a living, working with a hoe or working with that machinery to the glory of God, knowing every day when you go out to do this, if you did this for the glory of God, God is glorified and he rejoices in what you do for him. And do not think, well, I don't get up every Sunday and open up the word of God and preach the word of God. Therefore, what I am doing is somehow less spiritual or less special. That's false. The Bible tells us whatever we eat or drink and or whatever we do, Do all to the glory of God. So we must get over that thinking of a sort of spiritual caste system. If that is the case, then there must really be no secular, sacred divide. Uh, That term secular actually had a different meaning a couple of hundred years ago. It meant sort of outside the church. But today it means something else. It means away from God with no reference to God's authority. Or even God's existence. But an older way of looking at this, I'd like to employ an older way, older language and distinction, and that is not secular sacred, but sacred and profane. Sacred and profane. Everything that is not committed to God and under the lordship of Jesus Christ is profane, and it is not under his authority, and it's at war with him. Now, that way of thinking actually requires us. To be very principled, I like the word very intentional, was used earlier today, very intentional in our thinking. Everything that we do should and could be done for the glory of God, and if you can't do something or think a thought to the glory of God, you shouldn't do it or think it. But everything that we can do, we should do for the glory of God. I mean every every minute task. I don't care if it's building a retaining wall or making a repair to your house, or changing a flat tire, or writing computer code, or selling stocks and bonds, or whatever the case may be, whatever the case may be, as believers, we should do all to the glory of God. All areas under, presently, under the authority of sin and influenced by sin need redemption. I mean, that is true of anxiety problems, it's true of our current corporate welfare system, of the sexual chaos that surrounds us that we have been addressing in this conference, old age care, and I could go on and on and on. All of those need to be brought under Christ's authority. Everything needs to be, if I can use this language, everything needs to be sacralized. Sacralized. And then I'll move on quickly and uh, talk about. An enjoyable creation. The Bible says in First Timothy six seventeen that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Um, some of us, I think, have the idea that enjoying creation itself uh, is somehow secondary to specifically reading the Word of God or praying. It's sort of optional. But if, if, as I said earlier today, creation is God's normative environment, if creation is God's normative environment for how we're to live and honor him, enjoying that creation is enjoying what he wants for us. Now, I mean, that can mean everything from rejoicing in majestic mountains and going for long hikes to spending time looking at oceans and swimming in them and the lush forests to the beauty of the human body, to work. Work is a wonderful, beautiful... There is great beauty in work. I know we joke about it, not wanting to go to work. But I would assure you that there is great beauty and glory in work that's done to bring glory to God. Uh, Another thing, a filet mignon. That's not creation. That's more culture, but comes from creation. Donuts. Donuts. Uh, Kevin Johnson has been consuming them today one right after another so I had to so I had to bring that in but I, I must say I must say he certainly is an anti-Gnostic thank God for that he's enjoying God's good God's good provision he said his donut identified as sugar free it, it was a self-identifying donut A subjectively identifying donut this also, and I'll just mention this very briefly, this also leads to the issue of appreciating things, good things, even unbelievers do, because of God's common grace. Now we need to distinguish God's special gift or grace from God's common grace. Now God's special grace or redemptive grace is only for those who have trusted Jesus Christ and whose benefits of the, benefits of the cross and the resurrection come to us through faith. But you see, God has a greater interest in people than only those who have trusted in him. And you know that God, the Bible says God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And he gives amazing gifts to unbelievers. And we should appreciate them. Not because there's anything inherently good in those people themselves, though they're made in God's image. We must never forget that. But because God gives these gifts. How many of you here are Michael Jordan, our basketball fans, and you've seen Michael Jordan? Nobody. All right, a few of you. All right, I don't necessarily like him. He's a profane man. But I must say, watching him on the basketball floor is truly amazing. And you know what I've done? I have thanked God for the amazing gift. It truly is remarkable. And if our attitude is, well, that's actually not very appropriate, not very important because it doesn't happen in church or somebody wasn't getting converted, it's really to miss the point of creational normativity and appreciating the glories of creation. And then I must hasten on and talk about our next point. I think it's the fourth there. I believe man is a holistic being. I kind of anticipated this in a question from one of the Shea girls this morning, but I must say again that man, the Bible does not present man or humanity as a sort of composite of separate, different parts. Um, many of the ancient Greeks, for example, saw... The, the human body as the capsule for the soul. And uh, they believed, by the way, in the preexistence of the soul and that this soul was sort of trapped, doesn't this sound very Gnostic, mm-hmm. sort of trapped in the human body. And the greatest day, to some of them, Socrates, for example, the greatest day of your life is, is your death because you get emancipated from your body because there is this thing inside you called a soul. Now, I must say that there are large sectors of the Christian church that have embraced this anthropology, many good and thoughtful people, and I understand why they have held it. But in my view, and in the view of a a number of scholars, particularly those that understand the Hebraic uh, view of man, as well as the New Testament, for example, would suggest that that's not true. Man's a unified being. That is, you are made up of both material and immaterial parts, but they are what I would call the interwovenness of man. The interwovenness of man. These immaterial parts, the the heart, the Bible speaks about this heart metaphorically, this part that seeks after God or can't seek after some apostate notion or thing. All of this is woven into our physical being. And now you understand why the resurrection is a necessity. Because man was never designed to be without a body. I want you to think about the implications of that. Man was never designed to be without a body. Um, have you ever talked to these Christians who say, well, I'm, I'm longing for death because death will be such a beautiful thing. Um, the Bible presents death. Read 1 Corinthians 15. Death is an enemy. Some of you know that uh, my mom just passed away from pancreatic cancer um, August the 8th. And I saw how that that cancer just ravaged her body at the end and just went down to about 80 pounds or so. And just, oh, it was the saddest thing to see. And of course, that's the effect of sin. Not so much specifically her specific sins, though she certainly was a sinner, like all of us. But the condition of sinfulness that entered this world. But, and think about this for a minute, understand that if we believe in creational normativity, we would understand that death is an abnormality. I hear sometimes hear people say, well, death is a part of life. Well, death certainly is a part of the sinful order, but it's not entirely correct to say that death is a part of life. It's not a part of God's design. God's design is for us to have eternal life. And not have death, you see. So let's think about that and about death and how the death should be abolished. I I want to mention this quickly. There's something very powerful. How many of you remember the story of uh, Lazarus and uh, his sisters? And Jesus Christ, of course, is coming. Lazarus has died. And as is one of the ancient customs, a lot of the uh, family members, kin as they were perhaps called at the time, would sort of wail and cry and so on. Nothing specifically unbiblical about that, as long as it doesn't go too far. And the Bible says, some of the translations say, and Jesus' spirit, when he saw this, Jesus' spirit was wholly stirred within himself. Actually, literally, it means Jesus got really angry. That's what it means. It doesn't mean he got angry at their wailing. It, Jesus got angry because he was saying, this is not right. Death is not right. He's saying, I came to destroy the power of death. And that's why he said, I am the resurrection and the life, you see. And to anybody who puts down creation and puts down the human body, I would remind them that Jesus Christ came so that we could be resurrected like he was resurrected. To live in a body, a glorified body on a glorified, resurrected earth, according to his creational norms. So then I would say, concluding this point, creation is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful and good and holy thing. And then I'd mention very quickly evangelism and the calling to restore creation. We actually need, if you understand this, a new, well, I'm really saying, I guess, an old kind of biblical evangelism when we speak to sinners we're inviting them when they trust in jesus christ for salvation to be true to god's original plan in salvation it's that god truly has a plan for your life have you ever heard of people that say well you begin with god has a wonderful plan for your life but the anticipated answer for that conventionally has been well he wants you to trust in him so that you can be saved and go to heaven when you die the specific answer though the original answer is correct People should get saved because God has a wonderful plan for their life. But not so much that they can die and go to heaven. It's that they can be restored to what God intended them to be in his original creation. And little by little, incrementally, he's doing that. And that plan, I would assure you, is not the plan of escape. Now, think about this for a minute. For the most part, and in most cases of the Bible, God does not allow us to escape. Now there are some specific examples, but essentially the way God does things is he allows his people in the post-fall world to go through certain difficulties, and in most cases, not all, but most cases, he delivers them. He doesn't deliver them from trials, he delivers them within their trials. That's true even of our Lord. He wasn't delivered from the cross but he was delivered in the act of salvation, the act of saving us, in the resurrection, you see. And this is true of ancient Israel, it's true of the Apostle Paul, it's true of many of the saints of the Old Testament. Ours is not a theology of escape, ours is a theology of redemption. So then, when we talk to unbelievers, we should talk to them about what Jesus calls, and what the Bible elsewhere calls, eternal life eternal life. That's what Jesus Christ came to give, eternal life. And would you like to know essentially what that means? Jesus gives, and we won't look there, but in John 10, 10, does anybody know? Jesus says, I came, the devil basically, he says, came to destroy, kill, steal, and so on. But I came, can somebody sort of finish it for me? I may have life, life, life to the fullest, he's saying, life to the fullest. So for you to think, well, Christians should never say, I want to have an abundant, joy-filled, wonderful, ecstatic life. For you to say, well, that's not very spiritual is to counter what Jesus said. I can tell you right now that God wants you to have, I didn't say happy, but genuinely joy-filled, abundant life. Yes, God wants you to have that. And I don't mean that God's going to do that by giving you a bunch of Lamborghinis and... uh, and beachfront property, and new helicopters. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the blessings of creation, and the blessings of family, and the blessings of a church, and yes, a number of material blessings also. But this entire package of a full life. God is presently refurbishing the cosmic mansion that he created. And then I'll move on to the, uh, I think it's the sixth point, Christian unity. Now, this is very interesting, and I'll touch on it just briefly. Um, We Protestants find it very easy to embrace what I would call soteriological hyperspecificity. That's a long... That's one I'd better explain. What I mean by that is people that believe that they understand the salvation doctrine so well that they can just understand every minute detail so well. And if somebody disagrees with them on a pretty minute detail, they're ready to say, no, I'm going to put the line right there. For a number of people, it's what some of you will have known, as the Ordo Salutis. What is the order of salvation? Is it like election, and then calling, and then faith, and then regeneration? Or... Does regeneration come before faith? Those are fighting words. Isn't it? Basically, is it basically faith first or is it regeneration? So on. I'm basically making the brief point that if you understand what I'm talking about, if you stress and understand creational Christianity, that the goal of redemption is the restoration of creation, you'll understand that fighting about the, the specifics the minute specifics of soteriology is really the wrong way to go. Not that soteriology is unimportant. Not, for example, that there aren't legitimate differences between us as Protestants and other sectors of the church. I would never say that. But we're not going to spend so much time fighting on that that we don't understand our calling is to advance the kingdom of God and restoring creational norms. So then, creational Christianity unites us around creational norms and the faith once for all delivered and the great creeds of the church, which means we can often labor together. And then I would conclude with this. Um, I, uh, Some of us, I think it was Kevin I was talking to, of all people, Christians should be uh, inveterate, hopeful optimists. Um, all of us go through real difficulties at time in our lives. That's part of God's plan. He uses them to shape us and help us and so on. And as, even as we read the Psalms, we see David often sad, even at points of despair. But if you read the entire Word of God, I would suggest to you that for Christians to live in prolonged sadness and prolonged pessimism is not a Christian way to live. <laughs> the Bible is full of God's promises. Unfortunately, we are full of unbelief. I want to make an emphatic point that's, for some reason, this is an unpopular message today, but it's true. The Bible offers very severe warnings to people who live in unbelief. Now, when we hear unbelief, we automatically think of, well, those who have not believed in Jesus Christ. Those who have not trusted him. And of course, since I have trusted in Christ, then I don't have an unbelieving heart. But that's not quite true. Again and again, Jesus Christ said to his disciples, who at least in some sense in that point had believed in him, where is your faith? He would chide them because of their unbelief. So it's possible for Christians to live in unbelief. But sister and brother, that's not the way to live. Live according to the promises of the word of God. Pray the promises of the word of God. We can't, on the one hand, say that we believe in the divine inspiration and infallibility Of the Bible, and on the other hand, live lives of despair. You know why? Because this is the most joy filled, hope filled book in the world that you're holding. Creation, Fall, Redemption, the storyline. Redemption at the very end. Read the last few chapters of Revelation, but not just that. Read Jesus' ministry, read about his resurrection, read the promises to the disciples, read the promises of the Old Testament. There's one. It's just so powerful in closing. I'd like you to read uh, read together. Let's turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Of course, the book of Daniel, the prophet, has does have a number of difficulties. But the one that I am reading, I'm going to have you read, is not difficult to understand at all. Daniel chapter 7. And notice this. I could show you hundreds of promises, but I'm just going to no, point out this promise. Daniel chapter 7. This is uh, an interpretation of one of Daniel's visions. He had a number of them, but this is one that is always such a blessing. If you're ever in despair, ever disappointed, why don't you turn to Daniel 7 and read verses 13 and 14. Read silently as I read. Daniel is speaking, of course, And he says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. Now, some of your Bibles, that son of man might be capitalized. Of course, it's not specifically capitalized in the Hebrew Aramaic, but that's a good idea. Because clearly son of man there is referring to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. One like the son of man was coming and he came up. Notice that he came up. To the Ancient of Days. Now, does anybody want to hazard a guess as to who the Ancient of Days is? Yeah, the Father. God the Father. And to him, the referent of him is the Messiah, the Son of Man. To him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. Here's the money line. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Oh, by the way, here's one of the main reasons that I read that. Do we have any examples of any time in the Bible when Jesus Christ was like moving on clouds and moving upward? Now, that's, does that sound vaguely familiar to anyone? What's he referring to? He's, prof, he's prophetically, what's he prophesying? The ascension of Jesus Christ who went into heaven and received his kingdom. And by the way, you can also read about this more specifically in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. After his resurrection, Jesus was raised up to the heavenlies. And that's when he was formally crowned. I mean, he was a king on the earth too, his first coming. But formally crowned as king over all dominions and principalities and powers. Formally crowned when he returned to heaven after his great redemptive work. Isn't that a lovely, lovely all the nations might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So, I want to say in conclusion, the gospel is not a message of escape. The gospel is a message of victory. And whenever you account theologies of escape that are constantly talking about, well, we need to do what we can to sort of stay away from evil. You know, on Christians, I know this attitude. Um, Everybody's always saying, well, let's be safe, wherever you go. Be safe. Be safe. There's a sense in which that is true. The Bible teaches we shouldn't be presumptuous. But I must tell you this, and I hope some of you parents will think about this, those of you that have children and like me, grandchildren. I'll say this on the authority of the word of God. God does not always call us to safe places or to safe actions. God calls us sometimes to very risky places and difficult actions. There are numerous examples in the word of God because often it's precisely there that God's greatest victories are accomplished in unsafe places. The only people that can go there are people with great faith in the sovereign God and know that the Bible presents us a theology of victory, not a theology of escape. Mm -hmm. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would imbue us with your spirit, not just for illumination, but also with great power. Lord, help us to walk on earth as kings and priests, not in some sort of self-pride, but recognizing that we are your chosen ones. And we've called on your Son, first because you called us, but we have called on your Son, and we're in your army, and we walk as kings and priests in the earth. Lord, give us a profound appreciation for your creation and your creational norms. Give us the prudence to navigate all of these uh, complex issues as a result of the apostasies, the intellectual and uh, sexual and familial and political and social apostasies of our time. Give us great wisdom. But Lord, help us not to lose faith, but live in great belief and great hope and stand firmly, on the promises of your word. Oh God, give us greater faith. Faith we know is a gift. Give us greater faith, O oh God. Knowing that you have called us to nothing less than victory. We pray, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus. The victorious one. Who defeated the power of sin and hell and death. And is alive today, ruling in the heavenlies. Right next to you, Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.